This week, a team of Japanese scientists announced that vast deposits of rare earth minerals, considered essential for the production of many new technologies, have been found under the Pacific Ocean. But the discovery could have major environmental and geopolitical implications. Joining us now are Cindy Lee Vandover, director of the Duke University Marine Laboratory, and Peter Kellerman, an Earth and Environmental Studies professor at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. I'm very pleased to welcome them to today's underreported segment. Hello. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, Leonard. It's great to be here. Peter, uh, why are these minerals so important that people would go looking for them at the bottom, a very deep part of the bottom of the Pacific Ocean? Well, the rare earth elements in general are widely used for lots of applications, but uh, in particular, the elements neodymium and dysprosium have become really important because they're used in a lot of clean energy technology, specifically wind turbines and electric or hybrid cars, in uh, both electric generators and electric motors. Now, you mentioned names that I don't remember from my my chemistry class and my physics class. Um, how rare are these things, and uh, how rare are they on the Earth's surface? They're not particularly rare. Uh, they're found in almost all crustal rocks on the Earth's surface, but, uh, of course, we're always looking for deposits where they're in high concentration because that will be more inexpensive to mine. And the other important fact about the rare earth <clears throat> elements right now is that uh, roughly 97% of the lighter rare earth elements are found are being mined in China, supplied from China, and almost 100% of the heavier rare earth elements are being supplied from China. Sandy, why are so many different kinds of minerals and metals uh, in high concentrations uh, in in the ocean? Well, my understanding, Peter is more of an expert at this than I am, but my understanding is that um, these metals are coming from, in large part, from the hydrothermal systems that are on the mountain ranges that girdle the globe. And so the fluids, the seawater goes down into the hot rock, reacts with it, picks up uh, uh, chemicals and metals, and um, they flow out of the seafloor. And then the plumes rise up a couple hundred meters off the bottom and spread out across the ocean, particles deposit. Uh, those particles are rich in, in metals. Does that sound right, Peter? That sounds right. The paper that appeared this week in uh, Nature Geoscience by these Japanese authors has a map which shows very clearly that the concentrations of rare earth elements in the seafloor sediments are highest near the volcanic ridges in the eastern part of the Pacific. So they're coming out of the uh, the center of the earth, in effect. Uh, but also copper and zinc, they're not all that rare. That's correct. Uh, but if you were going to go to the trouble of mining these so-called metalliferous sediments, you would certainly be extracting copper and zinc as a byproduct. Cindy, haven't we known minerals have been on the seafloor since the 1970s? So is this discovery anything new? I, I, I don't know that it's so new. I think it's um, the, the comprehensive well, look at, at these muds, the distribution of these metal-rich and uh, rare earth element-rich muds on the Pacific seafloor. So it's a, it's a large number of samples spaced over a broad geographic area and, and finding very, very high concentrations. So it's, it's a new look at those rare earth elements rather than, than just the, the metals, the copper, iron, and things. And how big are the fields of rare earth, de earth deposits that they discovered? 
Okay. I'll jump in there. They yeah. claim that it's roughly equivalent to uh, 20% of the world's proven supply right now. Wow, that's a lot. And uh, as Cindy suggested, or, or did you, I can't remember, they're concentrated in nodules? What does that mean? Cindy, you want to handle that one? Well, they, 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 I think in, in this case they're not talking about the manganese nodules, which were, were um, as, as probably most of us recall, from the 60s. Um, those were a, a real uh, resource. That, in fact, that's why the law of the sea came into being, is how to, how to manage that kind of mineral resource on the seabed. My understanding with these muds is that it's not the, the minerals in the, the rare earth elements are not in nodules. They're just deposits on the, in the sediment. So, so, they're, they're so you not those little potato nuggets of of metals. Potato size. Well, that's well, pretty big. Uh, well, so that, that's sorry. That's the manganese nodules. But uh-huh. I think in this case, it's just sediment. Is that right, Peter? I think it's probably both. It's not mm-hmm. that easy to tell from what they've written here. Well, hasn't there been talk of deep sea drilling for a long time? Uh, for example, there was the Hughes. Glomar Explorer. Mm-hmm. Although, right, that's such a classic story. We have to tell it on the radio. So. Uh, the Howard Hughes built for the CIA a ship uh, that seemed to be intended for seafloor mining. And uh, a lot of people who know a fair amount about this were completely uh, taken in by this uh, cover story. But in fact, it was built to recover a Soviet uh, nuclear submarine that sank in the uh, north central Pacific. So could it have done what we're now talking about? Well, I think that the technology for seafloor mining has come a long way since the Glomar Challenger, since the Howard Hughes ship. And um, indeed, I believe, and I'm sure Cindy knows more about this than I do, but I believe that in the Southwest Pacific there's one commercial company that looks like they might be getting ready to produce ore from the seafloor. It's called Nautilus Minerals, Cindy? That's right, and and they're working in a, in a, in a different kind of setting. They're, they're working directly at the hot springs where there are fossil fossil deposits of uh, copper, iron, zinc. Uh, uh, sorry, ores. Um, and so it's a it's a it's much more precision. They're, the size of those fields are um, just uh, on the order of a, a few football fields in in dimension. And their deposits may be down to about 30 meters. So it's a very precision extraction um, that's that's envisioned for for that area. I think uh, the vast abyssal plains. Well, they're deeper for one thing. The uh, the, the Cato report is uh, that was just out this week. That's in waters of 4,000 meters uh, depth. So that kind of system. You know, when we dive in a submarine, it takes us two and a half hours, so over two hours, to get to the seabed. Um, so it's it's that depth is it's a tough world to work in. It's it's um, 400 atmospheres of pressure, uh, so it's it's an extra challenge on top of the mining uh, technologies. Is there any life down there? <laughs> there is life down there, and that's one of the that's one of the uh, interesting things. I am a biologist, a deep sea biologist, and most of the deep sea is poorly known. Um, there's a we just finished a decade long census of marine life, and there was a a group of scientists, international scientists, who studied a census of the diversity of abyssal marine life, which would be the animals that live in this kind of setting where these where these rare earth elements are found. And they report that in every sample of mud that they collected, something like 50% of the individuals had never, uh, that the, the species had never been seen before by, by anybody. So, so if, if, a, if we're dredging up these minerals, we will also be dredging up 
living organisms and perhaps killing them. That's right. So they're, they're, they're mostly small animals. They're things like um, sea cucumbers and sea urchins. Uh, and then a lot of small polychaete worms that live in the in the muds and copepods and and uh, other small creatures, small shrimp-like crustaceans and things. Well, how would this uh, deep? And they will, go ahead. They will be destroyed when they get drawn up. Yes. How would this deep sea mining work? Would we simply vacuum up the seafloor mud, or would we do any digging, Peter? Well, I think that that's not well established by the people who uh, published this paper in Nature Geoscience. This uh, is a, a, a team led by Yosuhiro Kato at the University of Tokyo. Right. Uh, so they're just talking about the concentrations of the material and the depth to which it's found. Um, the Southwest Pacific uh, mining operations involve robotic diggers on the seafloor uh, and then basically uh, pipelines for carrying a slurry of, of fine-grained material plus water to the surface. So I'm sure that that's what they have in mind. A lot of your listeners probably don't realize, though, that, I mean, 4,000 meters of water doesn't sound like much. It's only a couple, few miles. But uh, there are only a few research submarines in the world that can go to those depths. That's well below the depth that military submarines uh, routinely travel. Well, Cindy, haven't you gone down that deep? Not very often, but yes, I have been down to 4,000 meters. Mm. Um, the, uh, you know, the U.S. submersible Alvin uh, goes to 4,500 meters, um, and there are some other countries have submersibles that go deeper. Uh, so we know how to build something that could get down there, but this sounds pretty <laughs> yeah, difficult to pull three off. Three people in it. <laughs> That's right. Well, we have unmanned vehicles as well that, that work at, at greater depths, um, and that, that's an easier route to go using remotely operated vehicles. So, so the, it's possible to get down there. But the difficulties make it sound like uh, unless there's an awful lot of stuff down there, it might not be worthwhile. But the team by uh, led by Professor Cato at the University of Tokyo point out that concentrations of rare earth minerals under the Pacific are as high or higher than those at one clay mine currently in operation in China. So that might make all the, the difficulties uh, not uh, as much of a concern economically? Well, let me uh, – so certainly the price of these uh, elements that are used in rare earth element magnets in wind turbines and in cars – uh, has more than doubled since the middle of May. That's because the Chinese control something in like 97% of all these well, minerals now available? Well, not only that, but they're, they're signaling that they're not going to be able to meet world demand. Is it all, last, is all in China? Is, is that where most yes. of the deposits are? Yes, and in particular, the heavy rare earth elements are coming from this clay deposit that is mentioned in the article by Professor Cato. They're coming from the clay deposit in south-central China, which is virtually unique in all the world. We don't know of anything comparable. It's hand-mineable. You can mine it with a shovel and a, and a wheelbarrow. And, in fact, they have problems with basically wildcat miners with illegal mining and smuggling into Vietnam because the stuff is so easy to dig up and move. But aren't there so, also uh, other things, radioactive things that come up with them? That's right. So in any rare earth element deposit, there's going to be a substantial amount of thorium and uranium. And until uh, about 10, 15 years ago, the United States was the world's largest supplier of rare earth elements. 
and that was mostly coming from a mine called Mountain Pass in Southern California. And there's a number of reasons why Mountain Pass closed. Uh, partly uh, the price was lower for the exports from China, but also they had long wastewater pipelines that had a significant amount of radioactive thorium in them, and they had leaks along their pipeline, and people, uh, mm. you know, there were this ran afoul of the environmental regulations. So, but Mountain Pass Mine is starting up, and there's kind of a worldwide rush on rare earth elements, because as I said, the price pretty much doubled in the last two months, and that's on top of about a tenfold increase since 2007. And these are in international waters. Uh, Cindy, doesn't the International Seabed Authority have jurisdiction over uh, those areas? It, it does. It has. It treats them as a, uh, the mineral resources of the seabed in areas beyond national jurisdiction as a common heritage of mankind. And and the ISA, the International Seabed Authority, um, both regulates the mining and is responsible for protection and preservation of of the marine environment. So, what would that mean? Would uh, you, there wouldn't be a, a gold rush kind of thing happening because they, because people would have to get leases? That's right. So, and in, 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 and before the leases could be got, there would have to be regulations put in place for both exploration and then exploitation and environmental assessment and and management. So that's a it's a you know with an international body, it's a it's a, a bit of a long haul to to work out the um, the regulations, is my understanding. But but they can they can be done, and it's a it's a considered process. I would I would say. Well, considering the the leakage that we saw in California, I would think that. Uh, unless we really did this very carefully, uh, we would see all sorts of problems emerging. Uh, after all, we've seen them with deep-sea uh, uh, petroleum uh, efforts, like the, what happened with the BP uh, drilling in, in the Gulf. So um, uh, I, I would uh, hope that we don't destroy the Pacific any more than we already have. Uh, my great thanks to both of you for talking with Leonard, us. Leonard, can I just say yeah. one more thing? There's an interesting trade-off here because, for example, every big Ten wind seconds, turbine. Peter. Oh, sorry. Ten seconds. Go ahead. Okay. Every big wind turbine has uh, 200 pounds of rare earth in it or more, and we expect that wind generation will increase by a factor of 10 in the next 10 years. Thank you both so, so much for being with us, Peter Kellerman and Cindy Lee Vendover, uh, for today's look at deep sea mining on our underreported segment.